Welcome to the Weatherman Podcast. This is your host, Chad Stecker, and I am the Weathered Man. This is the podcast where a humbled man pleads to a broken world to listen to his eccentric thoughts concerning life, family, and the church today. And today, I've got a treat. We're going to be beginning part one of a three-part series with an amazing man of God where we talk about intergenerational relationships, how we deal with generational trauma and generational curses, generational issues within our family lives and in in areas of expertise and just how where we live, work and play. How does intergenerational relationships and and looking up towards the generation that came before you and then looking down to the generation that you help produce to looking left and right to those that are you consider peers. The man I have on today is the executive director and founder of A Chosen Generation. He is an ordained minister of the gospel with the Evangelical Church Alliance and has earned a doctorate of ministry specializing in Christian leadership. As a lieutenant colonel, he served in various key leadership and staff positions, including three years on the joint staff in the Pentagon. He serves the Lord in his local church in various ministries and leadership positions, and after his retirement, he served with Promise Keepers for three years as the regional director of the South Central Region. In 1997, he launched a ministry called Mission Capable Men, and then a chosen generation in 2000. He uniquely combined several years of business experience, 23 years of military service, and over 20 years of full-time ministry to bring forth a clear strategy to equip, train, empower, and release a new generation of leaders. He has a passion to see churches return to truly intergenerational communities and develop the clear pathways that keep young adults actively connected to their churches and see them develop into the leaders that will impact every area of our society in the future. I could go on and on about this amazing man of God because he is my dad, Chuck Stecker. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation that dad and I had concerning generational trauma and generational blessings and and how do you receive and, and, and attain healing within a generational manner. So without further ado, Reverend Dr. Chuck Stecker. I am blessed to be here with Dr. Reverend Lieutenant Colonel dot retired to me he goes by dad pops father and sometimes when i'm trying to brown nose daddy it is good to have you here dad it's great to be here chad i love what you're doing you know as i've said i'm so proud of you and i'm you know it's one of those lines we might as well just get it out and for our listeners one of the things that i've learned is i want you to know i'm proud of who you are uh, not proud of what you do. I am proud of what you do. And that's an outflow that I realized that way too late in life, not too late, way late in life, that in saying that I'm proud of you only at the times in which you excel, it puts you in a works mode. And the only way you felt, whether you realized it or not, that I could be proud of you or you could make your dad proud was to do something else worthy through the years realized some of my own wounds in realizing the only way I made my dad proud was to do something. And he was proud then, but most, most of the time I didn't really feel that. I realized that um, I'd, I'd done the same thing to my kids, you and that, and trying to make some corrections in my own life and also with my grandkids. I, uh, I'm very proud of you, Chad. And, and just to be here with you is I'm the one that's honored in this process. Believe me. 
Sounds good. And you, you really dove in right off the bat. We're going to be dealing with generational trauma, generational healing, what we do about that, not just within age-defined generations, but within the generation in which we live now, where we live, work, and play. And without going there right off the bat, you went to the blessing part right off the bat. And it's something that you practice. We want to always lead people to the proper way to go about it, not just describe how we're doing it wrong. And it's the example I have in scripture is I love this, this part where when Moses went to the Israelites and the people were finally let go, we talk a lot about them leaving Egypt, but we also have to remember God was not just removing them and freeing them from Egypt. He was sending them to the promised land. And so if we only focus on where they left and how they left and not where they're going and who is sending them to that wonderful place, then we never get the full context of healing within our journey itself as well. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. You led right off the bat with the blessing. We're going to end with that as well and give you and give y'all that are listening and that are following this podcast an amazing application and some action points that are tangible. They're not going to be something you have to figure out. You'll be able to walk away from listening to this, these next three episodes going, this is what I can do about it. I want to start with this, like we've started every time before. I, I want people to know you, Dad. I want them to know where you came from, how, what made you who you are today. I, I know we have a lot of points that if they look at a resume, we can see the bullet points. Yes, you, you have a master's degree, you have a doctorate, PhD, you, you were in the military, and you like to say, you know, you started at the lowest rank possible, and if there was a lower rank, you would have started there. But you culminated to go from the lowest rank possible to retiring as a lieutenant colonel with multiple different facets within your military experience, ranging from Airborne Ranger Special Forces, Green Beret, to working on the Joint Chief of Staff with General Colin Powell, to the Casa Maggiore in, in Italy, and, and almost being kind of like an exchange officer. I don't know how the military would have put it, but to Alpini units up north, to many different schools, there's many different aspects of your resume. And we want to point those out as well, but I really want to take the next 20 to 25 minutes or so for us to kind of read between the lines within your history, within who you are as Chuck Stecker. And, uh, and however you want to put that, let's do it. The floor is yours, Dad. Got it. Well, Chad, it's, um, you know, those are things that sometimes I don't think that much about, you know, in terms and we'll talk about that and probably in the next session on the generational trauma issue of dealing with that. So that's why it's not just something that I, I throw out there and I've got it written down. But I, I, I start with this, that I was I'm the oldest of five children. OK, my mom and dad my, were married. My mom was 17 years old and a high school senior. And she got pregnant with me. My dad came back from the war and the, the, he came back from the war. He had been adopted and he'd been adopted by a couple that, in his words, were just mean drunks. And back in the days, uh, my dad was born in 1927. So you go the, the 20s, 30s and that, that the state paid money to these couples that would take these orphan children. And it was a, could be a major source of income for them. So in fact, in my dad's family, uh, he has two sisters, both adopted and himself. My dad, you know, as I look back on it, you know, at the age of 15 was on his own. 
living above a grocery store working, but still giving money to his parents and, you know, realizing that they worked and drank a lot. And a lot of that money went there at a very young age. At the age of 17, my dad went in the, the Navy. And here's this dynamic here that we get into that will affect me and impact my life. I tell people that it's this crazy world that on one moment, he was a considered to be a legal minor. And you could join the military with parents' permission. And at 17 years old, so in one room, they signed, gave permission as parents for their son to join the Navy, which by law made him an adult. They then moved to the next table where as an adult, he signed and took responsibility for his parents. So technically, they became dependents and they got money while he was gone as a dependent would from someone in their family. I mean, you get that picture of what my dad went through. Yeah. He comes back from that, uh, meets my mother. They both work at a grocery store. And it's it's interesting in the family dynamics that you, you get these things. And again, without going too much into our next session on this, but you know, I always saw my mom and dad got married in January and I'm sitting with my dad and he's going, who told you that? And I said, you did. He said, we didn't get married in January. He said, we found out your mom was pregnant and we got married. She was a senior in high school. They went across the river into Kansas. And, you know, you take my dad and had no idea who his parents, his birth parents were, father, mother, best they could figure was a farm girl from Kansas came in, delivered and put her baby up for adoption. So they get married in St. Joe. I'm born there. There was always this aspect of our family looking for the greener grass in a sense. And what I mean by that is, is so I'm born in St. Joe, Missouri. Three of us moved to Dallas, Texas. And here's the crazy part that you find out is my mom and dad sold Bibles door to door. Uh, We have one in our house, the big, great big thing that was left, you know, when mom and dad died. Mom had grown up in a Lutheran church and so forth. Dad never had any faith bases. He chose one when he went in the Navy to go on his dog tags. I think he chose Catholic to be on his dog tags because he goes, yeah, that sounds good. It sounds good. Yeah, I I can be that. It sounds like grandpa too. Oh, it does. Yeah, I can do that. What the heck? And so sold Bibles. But then that's where our sister, my sister was born, Kitty, in Dallas, Texas. She's born in 1950. So you get this. Then we're back in Kansas City. 1952, brother Carl is born there. And dad's going from job to job and so forth. He was a fireman there, among other things. And then he's born in 52. And the next thing you know, we're back in St. Joe, Missouri. And my brother Kurt's born there in 1954. And I can remember my dad going away to Idaho to work for a stint to, you know, to harvest potatoes up there because he couldn't really get a job, you know, that that matched up in in St. Joe. And then at the end of my second grade year, we moved to Omaha. But it's I started one school in third grade. We moved. I finished third grade in another school and started fourth. We moved, finished fourth grade, started fifth in another school. And mom and dad were separated then. And we didn't go to school. We went to to my aunt and uncle's and lived there for five weeks and didn't go to school, just lived on the farm. You know, I was in mm-hmm. fifth grade and, and the kids and you can see where some of the impact hit. But then they get back together. We move back in. And, and by the way, each time we moved, it seemed to be an upgrade. But then when they would separate, we would go to the lowest rung on housing again. So we, we went from a fairly nice apartment. We fell. They separate. 
we started in a much lower apartment and mm-hmm. then the progress again of moving up. And so we finished fifth grade and do sixth grade in a school, but we moved and got to finish sixth grade, but started seventh grade in another school. And then mom and dad were separated between seventh and eighth. Then we go into another tenement apartment. I mean, literally. And then that was between seventh and eighth grade. Then we moved again and they were separated again. And we go through that. And then finally we moved into a house and dad didn't move there with us or my sophomore year in high school. The crazy part is mom in this, this old 1927, 1920s, 30s would not divorce my dad. Here's why they hadn't been together in two years, maybe three, because the moment she was divorced and she wouldn't date. And she was a manager of a, of a restaurant business, people, guys coming in, all of this, because the moment she was divorced, then she would be raising her kids in a broken home. But if they weren't divorced, even though dad wasn't there or paying anything, and there was that, that pattern there, Mm. but you go during the years that with my dad in the picture there. And so here's the thing from a faith standpoint, my mom and dad, I will tell you are very good people. They did the very best that they could do, okay? Both from totally different backgrounds. My mom's dad died at a very, when she was very young, and there's a process there. And, uh, but in any event, in third grade, the neighbors across the street asked if they could take me to church. Chad, I've driven you by the church there. It used to be Bemis Park Baptist right off of Cumming Street, a little corner thing. It's now a, a um, can't remember, Tabernacle Church there. And I began going to that church. Neighbors would take me once a week. And I tell people that was my first salvation experience, that even in third grade, as the gospel was laid out, I knew that there was something there. And I said, yeah, me prayed with me. And I could say I accepted Christ. But then we moved again. So there was no more church. And so nothing then, and that was in the latter part of, you know, my early part of my fourth grade year, nothing then in fifth, nothing then in sixth, no, no relationship with anybody that went to church. I had no faith basis. And then in seventh grade, uh, the, the school that we went to was one of just about four or five schools in Omaha that didn't give up the seventh and eighth grade years to go to a junior high. We still had K through eight. Well, several of the gals in this class who put on the dances, because it was this group of gals that that would put on the dances for seventh and eighth grade at the school, but they went to this Methodist church and they kind of looked at a bunch of us guys and said, look, here's the deal. If you want to be invited to the dance, you're going to go with us to youth group on Wednesday night. We had this group of about eight or nine of us. Right. That every Wednesday night would walk up to this Methodist church that's now taken by the interstate and that, but it was in walking distance. And we went as a group and something began to, you know, where I was intrigued with the faith and so forth. And I can remember the, the pastor who's long since gone to heaven, Dr. Benjamin Schwartz, came down and talked to us and they were going to do a quote unquote membership class. But it was really to talk about the faith and, you know, what we believe and so forth. I remember going back to my mom and dad and said, I'd like to do this. My dad was the one that said, no, uh, I don't really want you to do that because someday, get this, our family's going to go to church together and I don't want you to get involved in a church and then for us to have to break you away from that. Wow. I'm going, 
Okay. Wow. So then the way I got back to it was a few weeks later, I went back and said, okay, look, wherever we would go to church as a family, I'd like to do this as an educational experience, not a faith experience. I'm not going to get attached to the church. You know, we do the youth group and that, and I'm in seventh grade. Youth group was a no brainer. You know, I could just say, Hey, I'm doing this. I'm playing sports, whatever. But it was the idea of taking this class with the senior pastor. And it was there that you know, things that I had never heard before in terms of Jesus Christ, beyond the third grade experience, the, you know, the aspect of, you know, God is the father and so forth. You know, a lot of the churches have changed over the years in terms of, you know, where they're at. This was just a, a very strong, I look back on it, very biblically based Methodist church in the 1960s in Omaha, Nebraska. And so there was this aspect of this stirring that began inside of me and I didn't really know what to do with it. And here's the thing. I finished the class. I didn't join the church and I didn't get baptized then because then that would indicate I was part of it. And that's what dad didn't want, you know, because when we would go to church as a family, he didn't want, you know, the heartbreak of me having to leave my church. So I went through the educational experience, but there was always this stirring. And there was nothing else in terms of discipleship that followed up. Now, I want to caveat that. We had a great couple that did the junior high youth group. And then we had a, yeah, no. Then in the, in the senior high is where D Frank and D Maycock, a couple with no children decided that they would step in for the church and they would lead this high school group and a remarkable couple. I mean, remarkable. And in many ways, I look back and didn't know at the time, but Frank really became a spiritual father for me in many ways that would lead even into the college years and some things like that. But there wasn't the discipleship and I I never worked out my faith in any way. I kind of knew and you kind of go, well, are you a Christian? I go, well, based on what I've heard, yeah, you know, I guess I am. None of those defining moments in a sense. And so it was kind of this ebb and flow of this, but there was nothing that defined me as a Christian that I could say was an anchor point in my life that from this moment on, I know what I believe and why I believe it. Right. So I want to, I'm going to lead you to this place of when we're dealing with generational issues, you obviously brought up your father and I, I I don't remember you telling this story. This is one of the first times I've heard the story, especially if you wanted to go to the dance, you had to go to youth or had to go to this meeting and, and the way your father reacted. My initial thought was, is did grandpa even have a desire to go to church? Was he just wanting to be in control or did he really have a desire to go to church someday and be a good man and be a good husband and father and you just couldn't get over the hump. I don't know if either of us know that answer. We know what ended up being of him. And we'll get to that towards the end of this part, this, this episode. But I want you to dive in more with your relationship with grandpa or the sure. lack thereof and how that affected yeah. you. And really want to get to the point where if you can lead us to the place of when you were in your greens and you went to go try to find your father. Yeah. or proof of something to, sure. to deal with wounds that happened as a child. And we know that much happened to you as a child, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. 
I really do believe, and I say this a lot on the podcast for those that are listening when we deal with testimony on this podcast, that the devil is in the details of our sin, misfortune, and mistakes. God is in the details of our future and redemption. And so we will focus more on the details of how God redeemed the relationship, not what happened between you and grandpa along the way that was probably not good. But I do want to you to lead us to a place and tell us a couple of stories I, I think of the time, I think of the time of him teaching you baseball or trying to teach you to throw. And I, and, 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 and kind of, if you could tell that, that part of your story and, and lead to the place of when you were in the military, really proud of yourself, trying to prove yourself and what sure. ultimately you figured out in that. Yeah. So, um, in growing up, we had these real high points, dad and I, that I could look back on. And uh, some of the things that would lead on down the line in terms of the relationship that I would ultimately have with my father in that. But I can go back and look at through my life, trying to earn my father's love and to be worthy of it. All he knew, you know, in terms of this was performance, you know, his view of fathering one, we got to remember that a guy born in 1927 gets a girl pregnant when she's in high school after he comes back from the war. Um, there weren't any fathering classes. You know, the National Center for Fathering with Ken Canfield hadn't quite started yet. Uh, you know, great dads with Bob Hammer eh, hadn't quite started yet. You know, so there were no courses out there. I'd venture to say there were no books out there on how to be a great dad and fathering. So my dad is operating on this because of this idea of just constantly having to prove himself. Now, let's give some perspective to people listening. My dad went in the Navy at five foot two, and he grew in those two years and came out at his ultimate height of 5'11". But at 5'2", in the Navy, all he did and through high school, the first part was just fight. He was called the Bant Bantam Rooster. I mean, you know, the, the fighting rooster. That was what he was, this little rooster that would just fight at the drop of a hat. He was also an alcoholic. Almost in a way, you know, it's, it's a crazy thought. You listen to a boy named Sue by Johnny Cash. And at the very end of it, the guy said, yeah, you know, I named you Sue. And it put the grit in your, you know, it goes through all of that. You had to fight your way through and be tough. Well, dad's idea of fathering, you know, I could look back on was, was to make me tough in his mind. Now, bear in mind, that's really cool. Yeah. Except for the fact in high school, I started high school at four foot 11 and weighed 89 pounds. And Gail <laughs> Sayers had graduated the year before. We're in a big school. And one of the times that you're referring to, Chad, is dad and I would play baseball on Sunday mornings. We'd play catch. It was on Lafayette Street in St. Joe, Missouri. And in the afternoons, we had no TV. That would come years later. He would listen to and he loved listening to baseball on the radio. And I did too then as a result of it. And dad and I would play baseball catch, but then we could go in and have a sandwich or something. And we would sit together around the radio and listen to the St. Louis Cardinals. Kansas City Royals didn't exist. In fact, the team back then was the Kansas City Monarchs out of the Negro League. And so in any event, though, playing baseball was this constant thing. And so we would play catch and he would throw the ball really hard. And if I didn't catch it, there was an alley and it was level. But if I missed the ball and it went a short distance, it would start rolling down the alley, down the hill. So as a result, I couldn't catch it. And my dad said, well, if you're not going to be a baseball player, you'll be the water boy. Go get a bucket of water. 
And what I had to do was every time I missed the ball, I'd have to grab the bucket of water and run it back to him, set it down, then go find the ball down the hill, get it, run back, bring the ball back to him and get my bucket of water and go back and we could start again until I missed the next one. And this idea that he would just throw. Now, bear in mind, I'm in second grade at that point. Okay. Then all of a sudden it would flip from that, have me in tears, literally not being good enough. And then it would flip like, and we'd be sitting around listening to the St. Louis Cardinals with, you know, Red Shandies and, you know, go back to all those players in that era of the fifties. So that was, that was one example. And it just embedded in me that if I was going to be loved by dad, I had to learn to perform for him. Right. And then ultimately you, you graduate high school, you go in between this moment in high school, you and your girlfriend have an amazing daughter who I call sister, who I call Lori. And there's a, there's an amazing story. And, and one day, I do want to bring you on for that portion of your testimony because I I believe it's such an amazing testimony on what God has done, not just in your relationship with your, with your daughter, but with um, her mom and even the relationships outside of that, that she's close to and what he's done to redeem that. But what happened was in between that you joined the military at some point. And like we joked around already, even though it's the truth, started as an E1, as low as you could go. We still have the pictures of when you were getting your haircut. I remember that haircut with them cutting your long Jesus hair with a cigar in your yeah. mouth. I don't even think yeah. you had a shirt on. You had this look. I mean, this was hippie Chuck, which if anybody knows you now would never have guessed hippie Chuck existed at one point in, our, in this world. There's a part of me as your son, we'd be like, I would have loved to have seen that, Chuck. And then there's a part of me as your son now, as I'm getting older, going, no, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with Colonel Chuck and, and dad. Can you tell us the moment that you kind of were able to look at yourself in the mirror wearing, I believe it was your dress greens? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and how you felt in that moment as a soldier and as a man. And then your first thought, of what you should do to kind of prove yourself, like you explained that you learned as a child? Well, I think what you're referring to there, Chad, is, uh, you know, I, I went in the army, you know, graduated from officer candidate school, which was never happened in these days. I had a high school education. That's uh, one of the low points there. And one of the assignments available, and I was able to get into special forces, Green Berets as a second lieutenant, another thing not happening these days. But with that, I can remember with my green beret and jump boots and ranger tab and jump wings uh, going back to Omaha. And then my dad, by the way, had been in prison when I went in the military in 1971. When I get back in 73, he's out of prison. He's a fry cook. And at two o'clock in the morning, it's the huddle house. That's a part of the Greyhound bus station in Omaha. Uh, literally my dad was working that night and realizing now the process, but put on my army green screen beret, spit shine, jump boots. I mean, looking good and went down to see my dad because I couldn't just go down in a pair of blue jeans and a shirt. I was the same kid that wasn't you know, worthy in a sense of IFL. But once he saw me in the greens, once he saw me in that uniform, once that happened, I knew in my heart, my dad would just be overwhelmed with how good his son had done. 
and my dad didn't have it in him. And I look back now and understand my dad, so much of what I expected, he wasn't capable of delivering. But I went down literally to get my dad's blessing. And I didn't realize at the time, but he didn't have it to give. And that's a part of what we've talked about, Chad. You can't give what you don't have. And very often we have this expectations of people to do things for us. They're not capable of doing. Then we resent it and very often leads to anger and even separation in the relationship. And that was really the battle that I was in and not even realizing it because my faith was not strong. Can't say I really had a faith. I could say I accepted Jesus. I could say I was a Christian, but I wasn't. But I wasn't. I wasn't a Christ follower. I may have been saved. I don't even know. I think I was, but I was not a Christ follower that would come later. That's beautiful. I want to take this time. I know you have you have told this many times, and I, I want to I want to hold off on the major details of even the redemption with you and your father. Sure. I want to tell a little bit from my perspective. Yeah. And in really looking at the wounds that you have, and we're, we're using this season, not just to deal with wounds and being weathered, but to dive into this concept and this biblical principle of healing that we see not just in the New Testament and in the life of Jesus and, or in the life of us as Christ followers after Pentecost happened. And, and we can read that in the story of Acts and everything. I have a son, Aeneas, who this whole season is based off of with the healing. His name Aeneas comes out of Acts when Peter and Peter was walking to the temple after Pentecost. And there was a man on a mat that was asking for, for money. And Peter leans down and says, for silver or gold, I do not have, but I have something greater. Please arise, pick up your mat and walk. And, and Aeneas is named after that. And the irony within what he's going through now with his hips and everything like that uh, was a major struggle on my part. But I also know that Jesus wins. The, the concept and the principle of healing, the characteristic of Jesus being a healer, God being the healer is still for today as it was then. But we see it in the Old Testament with healing as well that in this process from your childhood with the baseball story and so many that are like it to you trying to earn the father father's blessing. Ultimately, there's an amazing story of you at Reimer art auditorium where you, you were able to receive the father's blessing for the first time in your life from a stand in pastor that stood in as a father figure in your life and looked you in the eyes, hugged you as a father would, would hug a son healthy wise and, and bless you as a son, as God, the father blessed his son, Jesus in scripture. It began a journey for you that we'll talk about in the third episode in this, in this series concerning how a chosen generation came about and everything that flowed from then. But in the, in the 90s, when you were at the height of your game, right, in ministry, some would say, with promise keepers and just kind of just in all that, and you were feeling good, just a different uniform this time, God laid it on your heart to find your father. And through mom's, we'll just put it this way, mom's encouragement, you took the time to go find your father, and he was in the, in the, the ghetto of Wichita, Kansas. And the story of where he was at, how he was living, what he was going through is just absolutely gut-wrenching. It is, it is something that Hollywood loves to write about. And it's, it is a story, a pure story of redemption. But what my favorite part of that story is, is after 
a couple years of going and seeing your father. He was in his 70s at that point. I believe 72 years old when, was it 72 years old? How old was he, Dad? 69 years old and 11 months. 69 years old and 11 months. There was a point that changed my world generationally and changed my children's world even before they were born. And since we're going to be talking about generational healing today and also deal with generational trauma, we must first talk about generational blessing because we always think a blessing is something that you do, but it's also something that you represent. It is who you are. And what I did was, is the blessing was not something that you did for me, but in, as a, as a son, Courtney and I have talked about this many times because we got to be with you and mom, Lori was much older. So she wasn't with you on some of these trips to see you act and interact with your father and how you honored him, how you treated him, despite how you were raised. I remember the first thing grandpa ever said to me. I remember it to this day. He looked at me and says, damn, son, you are about as ugly as you are tall or you are, you're as ugly as you are skinny, you know? Yeah. And, and I remember being demoralized in that moment, but not really because I didn't have much expectations, but I watched you love him regardless of how he treated you through the years. After you had loved him through many different ways, many different manners, through speech, through action, he was able to kneel before you and accept Christ for the first time in his life in his 70s. It changed my world. It shifted two generations we know of and multi generations to come. Because in that moment, I realized something and I realized something of who I am today. I mentioned on the podcast before, the episode before with the elders, that a lot of our generation, a lot of our culture in America, especially, chooses to never look in the mirror. You're always looking outward. You're always looking at who did this to me. Yeah, I did this, but it's because you did this or it's because you said this or it's because this happened to me as a child. And I have dealt with the other side of the gutter where I only look in the mirror. And so I spend so much, so much time just attacking myself or, or beating myself for, up for some stuff. But I was able to get to this place of, introspection because I watched you, regardless of what others ever did to you, being willing to be the first one to apologize, being the first one to ask for forgiveness, be the first one to step in to the game, even if it didn't look well, whether or not other people were stepping in with you, you led by example in this way. And, and instantly by watching you, I was receiving blessing. I would, my, my children were receiving generational blessings because it made it so much easier as I walked through when to recognize where I went wrong. And regardless of whether someone did something to me or not, I was going to lead by example and at least try to allow healing and um, reconciliation to begin, even if it wasn't reciprocated on the other side. And I saw that with you and I saw that in you and I see that with you and mom and how you raised us and all the hurt you've gone through in life hurt doesn't stop. Wounds don't, you know, earth is always trying to bring about new wounds or at least open up old ones. And you've always refused to allow that to affect who you are. And so I just wanted to say that I know I left out a lot of details with grandpa, but I feel like that's your story to tell. And we frankly don't have time for that in this part. So as we, as we start closing up part one, I know it's moving 
it's, it's, it flies by. I want you to just have an opportunity to kind of just summarize or kind of bring this full circle and, and give me at least one thing that you've learned from your life of growing up and the, the lifestyle that you grew up with your father and with your mother that affects how you now grandparent, not just parent, how you treat your grandkids. What is something that you have learned along this journey that you've walked that has changed your whole mindset and how you deal with my children and the generation that followed your seed? I think the biggest thing is, Chad, that man, I've got so much work to do in this area. And looking back, I felt that honor was a one-way street that my job was to honor and I didn't do that well. And we'll talk about that, I think, in the next session. And I had to come to grips with that aspect of honoring and honor was to be earned all the time, not because that's what God told us to do. And I think the biggest thing coming out of it is that the the need for maybe, I don't know, I'll get the right words. And you think it's a good thing I'm not a speaker because if I was, I'd have the words, but it is the, the honor, it's honoring my children and my grandchildren with, you know, you can say, well, they need to honor me. They really need to honor me. You and I have both been around pastors or others that said, you know what? They need to honor me. This is my position. They need to honor me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they honor up to others because they want that association but they don't always honor down. Mm. It's that process of bringing honor to you, bringing honor to Tanya, bringing honor to my grandkids that they learn what honor is because they feel it coming from me as the patriarch in the family, in a sense that I honor them for who they are and not putting them in the position I grew up with that the only time they feel honored or blessed mm. or valued is when they perform. That's good. Okay? That's and that's the, my biggest takeaway as I'm learning as a father and I'm learning as a grandfather, the importance of them feeling honored for who they are coming from me down. God will take care of the honor from others to me. If you work to have others honor you, uh, I think we're missing it. And I, I told a story about a man, you know, Jeff Kasaya went to be with mm. the Lord a few years ago right. and a great friend. He was such a man of honor and people honored him, but because you could not be around him and in his presence without feeling honored by that man. And it's in the honoring of others that God uses that vehicle to bring honor to us. It's not because we demand it, deserve it, or we're supposed to have it because of our position. You will honor me. And it's about really uh, my biggest lesson is bringing honor to others is what God calls me to do, starting with my own family, honoring my wife in front of my own children and my grandchildren for her to know she's honored and for them to know that she's honored and cherished. But then my children, my two daughters in love, my son in love, my grandchildren, and then we go out from there, you know, it's like the rock hits the pond and it ripples out to my pastor, my friends, our ministry, be a man of honor, be a man of honor, not because you're honored, be a man of honor because you extend honor. That would be my biggest takeaway. That's beautiful. And sometimes we, we 
misinterpret or, or misdefine honor itself. And I encourage my listeners to go look up the definition of honor, not just from the Webster's dictionary, but from a biblical perspective of what honor is and what it looks like. And you're going to see exactly what dad's talking about, but I'm going to put it and bring it down and, and, and actually simplify it a le- little bit more for you. That's listening in context of what dad was talking about with three generations with the Trinity of God himself. One thing I love about the Trinity is that each person within the Trinity prefers the other two. For example, if someone should prefer themselves, you'd think at first it would be God the Father, right? I'm the creator, right? He's the Father. He's Abba. He's Jehovah God. He is I am that I am. But yet he knew for us that had fallen into sin, an earth that had fallen into blackness, into darkness. It wasn't him that needed to come. It was his son and his spirit that needed to be present on earth. He preferred his son and the Holy Spirit. But then you look at Jesus. Jesus should definitely, I mean, this is our Messiah. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is the only living perfection in the flesh. Yet, the Bible says Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. Meaning there was not a single action that Jesus did that God didn't show him to do. Meaning that Jesus preferred the actions of the Father than his own. And then even Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He says, I'm sending somebody greater than me. I'm sending somebody greater. And and so even in Jesus, he preferred, he honored, he brought honor to the Father. He brought honor to the Holy Ghost. But it means he preferred them. He knew that he had a place, but without them two, he doesn't work. The Father knew without the other two, he doesn't work. The Holy Spirit knows without Abba Father and without the Father and without the Word, the breath, there is no need for breath. We, we come to this conclusion that when, when Dad was talking about honoring, not just upward, but downward and across to your peers, what he was saying is, is we look at ourselves in the way we should. We don't beat ourselves up, but we prefer those around us knowing that we exist greater with them around us, that without me and his grandchildren, dad is not the same man, but I must also do the same thing. I must look upward and honor my father, as scripture says, and honor my children, honor my wife, because as I honor them, as I prefer them, they will be doing the same in return, preferring me. And we won't have to force ourselves into a door. We can actually allow the doorway to be opened up for us and we can walk in without a fight. And so that is probably the the most simple way of putting it. And uh, I I am so grateful that part one, I wish we could talk all day. Dad and I could probably do about six months worth of podcasting and not even get through half of his story. But this really sets up what we're getting ready to go into part two, which is dealing with generational trauma. And in context to my son, Aeneas, his grandson, and we're going to talk a little bit about Aeneas in this context as well, considering what that is, that is the whole issue that we're dealing with concerning the spoken word I wrote. If you want to, if you haven't listened to the spoken word yet, please go to the first episode of season two, and you're going to be able to listen to and hear the, the spoken word in its entirety called perfection. That's the episode and title as well. Listen to that. And you're going to see that God is the spoken word takes me from my dark place of, of diagnosis to him shining his light on 
a glorious future for my son in the midst of the struggle of this disease as we're dealing with now. Healing is a process. It's not an event. And that's what we're dealing with today and in the future episodes as well. Each episode showcases a process that God has us on and not just one specific event that we go and seek. So with that, dad, thank you so much for giving your testimony. I can't wait for part two and in where we get to really start diving into the nitty gritty on this one. I'm blessed to be with you, Chad. I'm very honored, buddy. I love you. Love you too. Thank you for listening to the first of three episodes with Dr. Chuck Stecker. Remember, in a world of groupthink, you can watch me, mock me, block me, or join me, but you can't silence me. Until next time, stay weathered, my friends. Thank you.